0: Wow! Thank you for that intro. Every time I preach, uh, which hasn't been a whole lot, but everybody gives me these really nice intros. And I always think, like, you know how they that Paul said that you know he's not all that impressive in person, but his writings are real good. I kind of think like the oh, the rumor of me might be more impressive than the me that shows up. But I don't know. I guess you can decide that. Uh, let me uh, let me read this this text. I'm gonna pray for us and then. Uh, And then we'll dig into his word. So uh, Acts chapter 2, 36 to 38. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, know for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I pray that deaf ears today will be open. Those who are mute will sing your praises. Those whose hearts are hardened would be softened that our minds would be shifted from how we've always thought about everything, Lord, to the way that you think. Lord, I am uh, an unworthy vessel and that is the beauty of the gospel. And I pray that you would flood this room with your spirit that all would know Jesus your son for he is worth knowing and uh, that we would do as this text says turn, repent, and come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to thank you guys for a couple of things here. Um, all the encouragement is so great. Your pastors are awesome. This is actually the first time that I've I've worshipped with you guys in this building. Um, I didn't realize that that door was so awesome. Every time, I'd been here one time and it was up, and so I never knew how you guys closed it. But then it started going down and I started thinking of... Jabba's Palace, and I was like, the rancor, the rancor's coming. If you don't know what that is, get your life together, (laughs) for real. The other thing I want to thank you for is uh, having Mona sit right behind me, because I don't know if she was killing it or if we were both killing it, but it felt like it was a we thing. Like, I was like, man, I'm killing this song, woo. So, that was awesome. You just need, everywhere we get, let's, I'm, yeah, just come with me. So, we sing together. Okay. So, uh, today we're going to talk about a wounded heart. Um, I love how the setup has come up so far throughout this whole service that, I mean, it, you really, really do a good job of, of giving me an opportunity to speak on something that the, the word and the spirit is already moving in this room about. So, I'm very thankful for that. Um, So I'm the youth director at Zion Church. And um, I don't know what the the kids are like around here. I'm sure that they're all collectively smart. And (laughs) when I showed up to be the youth director, I was super intimidated by like how smart kids are. I was like, what the heck is wrong with these kids, man? Like reading all these books and doing all this stuff, man, they're talking about Augustine's confessions and all this other thing. And I'm like, I haven't even read that. I don't even know what you guys are talking about. Okay, so, but I didn't want to stay there, right? I not want to stay there forever. So I decided I'm going to get me a shelf of books that looks real impressive, and I'm going to one by one make my way through them, and then I'll have something to talk about. So one of the books that popped up on this list, and I'm very thankful that it did, was a book called The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Um, some of y'all are familiar with this. Some of you are not. It's a very, actually, it's a very deep book and it's probably a little surprising. Oscar Wilde was kind of like the, uh, the rebel of his time, you know, and he was basically trying to do everything that he could to defy the cultural norms. And so he wrote this book about this, this kid, Dorian Gray, and, uh, and there's this picture that is made it's painted of dorian gray and uh there's this kind of like magical something that happens that dorian kind of wishes that his vanity and his beauty and his whatever could stay forever on him and that any of the the oldness or the anything that ever happened to him would happen to the painting right and so he goes on to live his life and it happens And one day he gets kind of a look at this picture and he's horrified because he's not that old. And what it was really doing, what it was reflecting was the damage that he was doing to his soul. And so he, like pretty much all of us, decided, I don't want to look at that no more. So he covered it up and he put it away. And basically, he lived his whole life with the goal of never looking at that picture again. But in all the fun, and all the drugs, and all the ladies, and all the whatever it was that he was into, in the back of his mind, that picture was lurking. And he knew that one day, inevitably, he would have to come face to face with that picture again. And what would it look like? Brothers and sisters, If you don't believe in grace, you will never be honest. If you do not believe that there is grace for you, you will never be honest. And what the word of God wants to do and what what I hope will happen today is that in the kindness and the gentleness of Jesus, he'll lift that off of that picture. And you'll either, one, you'll remember that it exists for the first time in a long time. Or you'll be just amazingly thankful that that picture no longer describes you. And either way, I hope that you come to repentance today in some form or fashion because the reality is is that if you don't look at that picture, you can never repent. So, We have three points. going will be as simple as possible. Who is Jesus? Who are you? And what now? Who is Jesus? Who are you? What now? Uh, Verse 36 starts out with this. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So, Acts chapter 2 is basically... Uh, The first sermon preached right by the apostles Peter stands up and he's got something to say and the entirety of his message The entirety of his message is Who is jesus? Who is jesus? That's it Who is jesus is the most important question That we can come to grips with. Second is like unto it. Who are you? But the most important question that you can figure out is who is Jesus? And so there was a lot of debates going on around them. There was a lot of, it's kind of like today, there's a a lot of people's opinions about who this Jesus is. And so Peter starts off and ends, call that an inclusio for those who want to impress their friends later. (laughs) He's already impressed. Yeah. (laughs) He starts off and he ends with this declaration of what God has done and that we have murdered him. So let's dig into the three points that Peter wants to make here. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Christ. God made him this. You guys ever heard the phrase? Finish this for me. Who died and made you? Somebody King. I was going for King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was too theologically astute. Uh, who died and made you King? You ever heard that? Now, what's the reference for that? Typically, like that's like somebody that needs to mind their own business. Typically, you're like, well, who died and made you King? You're like, speed limit forty. Who died and made you king? You know what I'm saying? You guys know. No? I'm the only one that speeds. Everybody speeds in here. Quit lying. <laughs> Repent. <laughs> Who died and made you king is, is the assertion that whoever it is that's telling you what to do does not have the right to tell you what to do. So the, the, the big point that, that being Lord and that being christ in a big sense do you know what that means that means that this man has the authority to tell you what to do now i don't know about you but i like the word savior better right like he saved me from my sins and and typically there's that's kind of the focus that we have right like Like, Jesus saved me from my sins. He's my savior, he's my savior, he's my savior. And that is absolutely true. Amen, say it every day. But, that is not Peter's point at this time. He wants the people that are hearing him to know that Jesus is Lord. Now, Lord even carries more weight in the context that he's using it, right? Because it doesn't just mean that he has authority, it means a little bit something else, and I'm going I'm to give you a little trail to follow, right? So in, uh, when, when the, the Jewish people, when the Hebrews would speak about Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, however you pronounce that, right? When they would say the name of God, they wouldn't say the name of God because it was too holy. They didn't even want to touch it. So they would say Adonai, and Adonai is essentially the Hebrew word for Lord, right? Right? And so the idea of someone being called the Lord in their mind had direct links to God. Because he's Lord. If you guys have noticed in your English Bibles that when it comes to the name of God, unless you have one of those new Bibles that purposely uses that the YHWH, It'll say Lord, capital, L-O-R-D, right? And that's what it's talking about, Yahweh, right? The God of Israel, the covenant name, Lord. And so when they would say Adonai, 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 they were very familiar with the term Lord. And so when Peter says Jesus is Lord, to them, what does that mean? What do you mean? Well, he can tell me what to do. Okay, there's lots of people that tell us what to do. Rome tells us what to do. What do you mean by Lord? And he uses this example right above it, Psalm 110. And he says, David wrote this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord said to my Lord. David said that. Now, if y'all don't know who David is... He's essentially the pinnacle of the kings of Israel, right? Some might say Solomon as well. That's his son. But David was, he had the promises of God, man. The king was going to sit on the throne of David forever. David was the anointed one. David was the king. David was the guy. And David writes this weird phrase, the Lord said to my Lord. Who's the Lord of David? Who's David's Lord? Well, there's two Lords talked about here. This was actually such a controversial uh, psalm that it was very rarely talked about because nobody wanted to touch this psalm because of the implications of what it was saying. Everybody kind of got this. And so when it came to it, you kind of just walked your way around it and said, it, it, David said this, that's all we got. Because the implication of the Lord said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand, was an unparalleled thing to say. This Lord sits at the right hand of the Lord, and all of his enemies are going to be made his footstool. Who is this man? The next thing he says is that he is both Lord and Christ. Someone being the Christ, someone being the Messiah, those are interchangeable, means that they were the anointed. And the pouring out of oil upon them, the the anointing that the kings received or that David received, I mean, it's symbolic of the Holy Spirit, right? That these people were chosen by God to do something. To be the anointed that they had been waiting for. This was also a big thing, right? Because the next sentence really throws it all into chaos. And we're going to get to that in one second. He's Lord and Christ, blank. Now what? So Psalm 2 says this about the Messiah, the anointed, the Christ. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers tank counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, if you put it together, it seems like the Lord and the Messiah are kind of synonymously talked about here as being the Lord and the Messiah, the Lord and the Lord and then you have this very interesting rest of the thing, which is he's got a lot of enemies. Both the Lord and the Messiah Psalm talks about his enemies. His enemies. You don't want to be his enemy. Imagine imagine the shock. He's Lord he's Messiah. God made him this. Because it's one thing for me to say that, hey, Kyle made that dude that way. Oh yeah, because of his word, he's official. Oh yeah, because of this, that, and the other, I co-signed for him. Yeah, 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 that makes him good. Yeah, okay. Everybody's got their day. Any boxer knows that you can lose. The coolest name on earth does not always hold weight. What if God co-signs for you? He says this throughout his sermon. He was, Jesus was attested to by God. God did mighty works through him. God raised him up. God raised him up. He says that twice in his sermon. God exalted him to his right hand. God made him this. Who made him king? God did. Say it with me. Who made him king? God did. So if you got beef with Jesus, you got beef with God. And you say to yourself, that's pretty good evidence. Okay. He was raised from the dead. He's Lord. He's Christ. He has the authority to tell me what what to do. He has the authority to rule over all creation. He has all these things. Okay. But now the question is, who does this sermon say that we are? It's time to take that picture out and let the Holy Spirit do a little bit of work in us. He says, this Jesus, who you crucified. Now, it's a big jump for me to go directly from the context of that conversation to you, so I'm going to take some steps to get there. But the question is, who is y'all, right? Because this is a plural you. You crucified him. Y'all crucified him. Who's the y'all? Well, throughout the sermon, you'll hear that it's those who live in Judea the people that live in Jerusalem. And you say, okay, good, that's real far away. <laughs> he says, men of Israel, men of the house of Israel. And then it's all those from all over the world because at the beginning of the sermon, it says, who was there in this, in this sermon context? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Serene, Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians. Now, at least three of those, you know where they are. They're spread out, right? Here's an interesting thing to think about. Their response was not well, I wasn't there at least not the recorded one because he basically just said everybody present is guilty you crucified him you murdered him this Jesus whose Lord Christ God made him this you murdered him And your heart goes, are you talking about him? You talking about me? What do you mean me? People from all over the world were present. People that weren't there for the trial were present. People that were probably confused as to what was happening were present. He said, you crucified him. Paul says it like this, Romans five. For while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. While we were his enemies, you ever thought of yourself as God's enemy? Some some grow up in, in maybe it's Christian homes, or maybe you're just good people, right? And you hear the gospel and you kind of think of, of God as being theoretically mad at, in the sense that he's mad at sin and brokenness in the world, but it's never, you've never looked down at your hands and seen blood. You've never looked down at your own hands and contemplated the fact that Jesus died for your sins, for meaning on account of, Right? Who murdered Jesus? I did. You did. The world did. Because on account of us, he was here in the first place. On account of you today, he was beaten and mocked and spit on. Because of you today, he was cursed and he was prophesy prophesy who hit you if you're the lord if you're the christ if you're this person save yourself thank god he didn't do it so who is jesus who are you if you don't believe in grace you're never going to look at that picture you're going to hear those words and you're going to say that ain't me i wasn't there So what was their response? Very simple. They were cut to the heart. You realize to be cut to the heart, that means that your heart had to be soft? This has been a problem with God's people from the beginning. The prophecies were always something around these lines concerning the heart of his people. Ezekiel 36 says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will take that heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You can't cut a heart of stone. The first miracle is is that your heart's cuttable. Because God's people and the people of the world have always heard his word and hardheartedly said, that ain't me, that ain't true, that ain't right. We hate finding out we're the bad guys. Well, you think Israel didn't? Remember those Psalms we talked about, Psalm 110? He's gonna make his enemies his footstool? Yeah, the nation's. Wait, me? Why do the nations plot in vain? Yeah, them nations, man. What's wrong with them? Wait, me? Who would have thought that these Psalms that have been being read forever was actually talking about them? What a weird twist. And let me tell you right now, you finding out that you're the bad guy is a lot harder than you think it is to accept. Because in theory, it's cool, but in practice, it'll take you places. I did jail ministry back and forth for a while, and I kind of get two responses. uh, Not always just these responses, but I've had a couple of responses, and people kind of think like, you know, well, yeah, you can do prison ministry, man. Because they don't want to say it, but they're like, look at you. You know what I mean? Like, of course you can. Okay. I know what they're saying. (laughs) No, I'm just playing. And it doesn't bug me because in a sense, it's like, yeah, I I mean, I did this on purpose. I get it. But you want to know why I can walk into a room and talk with somebody who murdered somebody cold blood and non-repentant and talk to them? I murdered Jesus. Beat that. What sin that you got is on top of that one? And you want to know what? Their hearts are hard. And if it wasn't for the Spirit's work in me, I'd feel the same way. You want to talk to the worst of the worst? Or you want to figure out why it is that you don't want to? It's because you haven't realized you are that person. They is you. I wanted to say that so bad. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was like, should I say it? Should I say it? So, the heart is hard, the heart is hard. There's other reasons why we harden our hearts, though, man. And I I just want to take a reality for one second, okay? We have learned to harden our hearts. Life will teach you to harden your heart. Whatever little bit of flesh that lurks about trying to grow here and there will be stomped out by this world. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, The Four Loves. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even animals. Wrap it up carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, It will change. It will not be broken. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And we all kind of know that. The world teaches you that grace ain't real, man. That you get what you get. And that if you didn't get what you get, that's not right you need to then there get it, right? The world teaches you an eye for an eye is the only way that rolls. As a matter of fact, it's not even eye for an eye. It's worse. One of your greatest fears and one of my greatest fears is to have a soft heart because it just might get cut. But there's grace for you. So what do we do, is what they ask. Their hearts are cut, it's softened, they're ready. They say, so what do we do? The answer to this question is the most important thing you could ever hear. So what now? I murdered the Son of God. What now? He says, repent and be baptized. Repent. Turn from it. Now, this is paradigm shifting though, right? Because what he's saying in repent is to accept everything that I just told you as true. Repent from the fact that you don't want him to be your Lord. Repent repent from the fact that you do not want him to be Christ. Repent from the fact that you want to get away from underneath the verdict that you murdered him. Repent, your whole paradigm has to shift. He didn't say, let's nitpick over what sin is and what sin isn't. He said, your entire life has to shift. Repentance is an entire shift in your life. It turns out Jesus is Lord, it turns out he is Messiah. And it turns out that I got blood on my hands. All I have to do is see that as true. And then it says, Be baptized in his name. Think of the irony of the statement. Be baptized in the name of the man that you murdered. And he will forgive you. And he will forgive you. Not only that, it says, You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? He doesn't want to just forgive you and keep you at a distance. He wants to forgive you and dwell with you and in you and work through you. He wants you to become his instrument of mercy on this earth. Because you want to know what you've looked at the picture. You've seen the horror. And then you've and now you've seen that it was Jesus who took all that horror Upon himself. He looked like your picture. And he did it for you. And be baptized in his name. And he'll forgive you. And the Spirit of God will live with you, live in you, work through you to talk to other people who don't yet know, to bring glory to the Son of God who died. For us. Repent. Paradigm shift. Be baptized in his name. He'll forgive you. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I know that there are at least someone in here whose heart just got cut. Bring them to yourself, Lord. Lord. You don't take it lightly to wound people. You do it only to heal. And I pray that there would be healing in the name of Jesus today. Amen.